Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science hop directly into your brain. I'm Julianne Popple. On this edition, we'll feature freaky frogs, swamp wallabies and troubled turtles. But first up, here's the science news. Sexy squids slow down. A study into the mating behaviour of the dumpling squid Euprimna tasmanica has revealed that the randy little cephalopods spend up to three hours mating and these amorous efforts are so tiring that it takes the little squid 30 minutes to return to normal swimming speeds. The dumpling squid is a member of the bobtail squid family found along the southern coast of Australia and are named for their small size and dumpling-like shape. These squid only live for one year and make the most of it by spending their last few months mating with as many other squid as they can. During mating, males are pretty energetic as they grasp onto the females, change colour, squirt ink and even pump jets of water into the female's mantle. Interestingly, females are just as slowed down by the sex as males possibly due to oxygen restriction from being restrained by the males. Being slowed down obviously increases the chances of the dumpling squid becoming a bite-sized meal. So the squid tend to bury themselves in the sand and use their amazing ability to change their skin colour in order to camouflage. The research was carried out by a team from the University of Melbourne and published in the journal Biology Letters. Lead researcher and master's student Amanda Franklin told the Sydney Morning Herald, There's a short sexually mature period, so there are costs associated with mating, but that is offset because they produce more young and get to pass on their genes. So that's a happy ending for the little squid. Holy Mars A rather spectacular photo of a hole on Mars' surface has been taken by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. The hole, estimated to be about 35 metres wide and 20 metres deep, is located on the slopes of the Pavonis Mons volcano. So why is a hole exciting? According to NASA, holes like this provide a nice sheltered area from the harsh conditions on the planet's surface and thus could contain living organisms. Therefore, this hole may be a target for future space exploration missions. Speaking about holes, meanwhile in orbit, the latest Mars exploration effort, the Mars Curiosity mission, is well underway and the landing of the Curiosity rover is a mere two weeks away. The mission was launched back in November 2011, but now it's a nerve-wracking time for NASA scientists in the lead-up to the landing, and especially the much-hyped seven minutes of terror. During descent, the spacecraft must slow rapidly from about 20,000 kilometres per hour so that the rover can gently land on the surface. The target destination is the Gale Crater which is an 150 kilometre wide and 5 kilometre high crater 
and named after an amateur Sydney astronomer, Walter Gale. Evidence suggests that rocks at the site were deposited by water and the soils there are rich in clay and therefore could contain preserved organic material. Therefore, evidence of previous life on Mars. NASA's Australian tracking station near Canberra will be the sole station monitoring the rover during its descent. Astronomers at the Tidbindilla station have been training for the event over the past three years. However, the complex landing process is entirely automatic and NASA have reported that the programs for the principal and backup computers have been checked thoroughly. Of course, because Mars is 13.8 light minutes away from the Earth, the landing will have already happened, or not, by the time the astronomers at Tidbindilla see it. But if it's successful, the car-sized rover will spend over a week checking its instrumentation before beginning its first drive on the surface. The ultimate goal of the mission is to ascend Mount Sharp in a search for signs of past life on Mars. In any case, it'll be an historic moment in space exploration. On the lighter side of space-themed news, a Russian Kazakh gopher has taken up residence right in the midst of the hustle and bustle of the world's largest space launch facility, the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. The cute little rodent was caught on camera, scampering and sniffing about in spite of the people and heavy machinery moving around. There is something quite surreal about seeing a gopher with the rather dramatic backdrop of a rocket launching platform, complete with a large space rocket, but the feisty little critter breaks up the tension by gnawing on the camera. Maybe they need to check their electrical cables too. For a link to the video, visit our blog at www.2ser.com shows diffusion. Scientists can do some pretty strange things in the name of their research. For this week's In the Name of Science, I spoke with Miguel Bedoya-Perez, a PhD candidate from the University of Sydney, about his consultancy work on a rare species of frog. Some people will do amazing and bizarre things in the name of love. Others will do it in the name of their country. But nothing nothing compares to what some will do in the name of science. So Miguel, what's the craziest thing you've done in the name of science and why? Well, I suppose the craziest things that I've done in the name of science is something that I'm still doing. Is uh, I've been doing some consultancy work actually as a field sampler uh, for a, a company and is by searching for frogs. This entails me to go to a very far country town that is in the middle of nowhere and further away than Newcastle up north and having to go into the 
cattle ranches and cattle paddocks in the middle of the night and search for a frog close to a river that is being transited by cows the whole day so there's cow pads everywhere and you just still have to walk there in the middle of the night in mid-darkness calling for the frogs and see what actually calls back so so when you say calling for the frogs are you making the call yourself or do you have a recording no you have to make the call Uh, you can use a recording but it's could could you please demonstrate the call for me miguel well the frog that we're looking for is uh the mixifesis iteratus it's an endangered species so the it's a big frog and it has a call that is like what what that's that's the call that it makes so you can imagine someone with a head torch in their heads walking up and down a river in the middle of the night making that sound it's gonna look crazy um you can imagine the kind of looks that we get from the farmers and all that that's i think the craziest thing i've done in the name of science and have you found the frogs while you're doing this yeah uh interestingly in my case when i go out i haven't i haven't heard any frog replying to me but i know that some of the people that go to address other sites do heard the the replies of some frogs it's very easy to find them even if you don't hear them back because they they're quite big so they and they have very big eyes so when you're with the head torch just like if you're in the street in the middle of the night you can get the eye shine of a dog you can get the eye shine of these frogs and it's it's huge eyes with these huge eyes it's almost like a cat so it's pretty easy and uh, why is this species endangered I'm not really sure. I think it has something to do with a lot of the development as uh, of the area as farmland, because it has a very restricted distribution. So it's basically in the area that we're working from the Bulladilla area, Stroud, uh, Gloucester, all those rivers supposedly should have populations of the frogs, but. It only occurs in the higher numbers in the national parks and in the reserves that are in the area. While in the farmland, they're they're still there, but they're in very low numbers. And aside from monitoring the numbers, is there any work being done in terms of uh, conservation? Not that I know, actually. I suppose part of the goal of this monitoring is not only to actually assess the impacts of this company in this area, it's also to see what can be done in order to improve what will happen with the species. It's very early to know exactly how the com- the, coal- the mining company is impacting on these frogs, but it seems like the bigger impact actually is actually the farms, because if you compare the numbers in the farms and the numbers in national parks, the difference is huge. Then if you compare the numbers in farmland between the areas that are that have mining and the areas that don't have mining, the numbers are not that different. So the mining is not doing a great deal of impact in these frogs. Mostly is the fact that these are areas that have been used for farming and there's a lot of deforestation, a lot of degradation, a lot of cows going into the water and yeah, so there's a lot of contamination in the water and that's probably, I think, Again, the data hasn't been analysed, but I think this is probably what is going on. Well, I hope when you go out next time that the frogs keep calling back. (laughs) That was Miguel Bedoya-Perez 
talking about trying to find the rare frogs in the name of science. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Populations of turtles in the Murray River appear to be undergoing a drastic reduction in numbers, which has scientists concerned. I spoke with Professor Mike Thompson, a zoologist from the University of Sydney, about the troubled turtles in the Murray River. Listen, we're really quite concerned about the turtles on the Murray. There's a guy called Bruce Chessman who uh, was the first person to really do a PhD on uh, populations of turtles along the Murray in the late 60s and early 70s. I did mine in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, a student of mine, Ricky Spencer, who's now at the University of Western Sydney, did his in the 1990s and someone else has done theirs in the 2000s. So we've got 40 years of data. In the, in the 1980s and early 90s, I wrote a paper predicting a catastrophic decline in turtles on the Murray in, in 30, 40, 50 years hence. You have to remember that turtles are very long-lived animals. And um, I'd identified predation by foxes as a, as a real problem for turtles because the foxes eat most of the eggs. And Ricky subsequently discovered that the foxes kill many of the nesting females as well. So there's this, this big underlying problem. Nobody believed me because there are a lot of turtles in the Murray. You go down there and you see, you know, you see hundreds of, thousands of them. Uh, and in fact, I tried to estimate how many turtles there were in the Murray, and it was very difficult to do. But we came up with a, a broad range of uh, 10,000 10, to 100,000 tonnes of turtles. So, you know, these are not endangered species. There's lots of them. Well, Bruce just recently went back to his sites uh, in Victoria, resampled them, and found uh, one of the species in one of his populations had declined by 90%. Another one had declined by 60%. So this rang alarm bells and we're in the process now of putting together a large research grant application to actually see um, how widespread this problem is, what the impact might be on the, on the River Murray and we're very concerned that it's going to have an impact on water quality, what the reasons for it are and what the po possible mitigation factors are. Um, factors are. So we, um, um, Ricky and I, uh, did a road tour down the river recently talking to all the local councils and state government agencies right along the river. And interestingly, turtles were not on their radar for most of them, but um, in our road tour we found that in the last six months two different Aboriginal groups in different parts of the river had identified the decline of turtles is as catastrophic in their areas uh, and they had raised it with their local agencies. Um, so, um, so the combination of the data that we've got, the observation that the Aboriginal groups have found and subsequent information I've got from some fishermen show that there's a, there's a really, really big problem here. Now, you know, you go to the Murray and there are still thousands of turtles. So you might say, you know, why is this an issue? Uh, but it's an issue because the Murray is designed to have 100,000 tonnes of, of turtles in it. So you suddenly bring them down to 1,000 tonnes of turtles, still thousands of turtles, um, but you, you're basically taking one of the foundation blocks of the ecosystem away. 
and the whole thing's likely to have have very wide consequences. We don't know what those consequences will be, but actually for one of the species, the short-necked turtle is an omnivore and a carrion eater. So it's, mm. it cleans up all the all the dead animals that are in the river. It breaks them into smaller components so that other things like shrimps and yabbies and so on can eat them. So so we think there's likely to be a water quality issue and, the, and other unknown things that are likely to happen. Um, so in, in relation to the water quality issue, is it that the decline in turtle numbers affects water quality or do you think a change in water quality is potentially contributing to the decline in uh, turtle numbers? Good question, and the answer is both. Um, we know that this is an underlying problem with foxes, but the recent declines were probably exacerbated by the 10-year drought, um, and it seems that in different parts of the river there are other factors, local factors, that superimpose themselves on the underlying problem. Um, so in some areas it's definitely water quality. So there are a couple of places in South Australia where increasing salinity as a result of the drought had dire consequences for turtles. In one place where the salinity went up to the point where the turtles were dying. In the lower lakes where seawater incursions allowed the infestation of poly, uh, uh, marine polychaete worms that make, ma that make hard cases. Uh, to live in, they were building these cases up on the shells of turtles, and the turtles were just drowning because they, um, they you know, couldn't sustain that weight of, of the polychaete worms. In other places, um, to the female turtles, because uh, most of these species rarely uh, come onto land, except when the females are nesting, because they dig their dig their holes to lay their eggs on land. Uh, so in some places, they are really susceptible to being hit on the road. And of course, you take the reproductive females out of the population, you have consequences on the on the total population. We think that pesticides associated with the cotton industry may have an impact in some areas, and in fact, it might be herbicides that that are important. And we don't know how widespread, but um, certainly in some parts of the Murray, there's likely to be a secondary consequence of European carp. So since the European carp have been there that they have basically demolished the ribbon weed beds that were very, very widespread in bits of the river. They've completely disappeared in bits. And when I say the river, I mean the river and its associated wetlands. The ribbon weed has disappeared over very large areas. Uh, and this is a very productive environment, the ribbon weed. The turtles relied on that. Now it's kind of a barren because uh, the, the carp have eaten it all. The turtles can't survive there. They're hungry. They ultimately will not either either not reproduce and ultimately potentially die. And these aren't the only populations of turtles that have been copying it recently and we've been covering the story of green turtles up the Queensland coast that have been dying in vast numbers and they're still not sure why. Have you heard anything about that at all? Oh absolutely um, and part of the reason for that may well have parallels to the turtle situation. So the green turtles eat predominantly they're eating essentially the marine equivalent of the ribbon weeds. So many of these turtles that have been found dead have been found to have no fat bodies at all and, and they have starved to death. Either that or they've gotten such bad conditions some other factor has killed them like the you know parasite infestation or something. That was Professor Mike Thompson from the University of Sydney speaking about declines in turtle numbers in the Murray River and the problems this might hold for the future of this valuable river system. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. 
We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. As Australians, we should know a fair bit about one of our national emblems, the kangaroo. But just how well do we know our furry friend Skippy? Or, rather, his smaller cousin, the wallaby. For this week's Creature Features, University of Sydney PhD candidate Miguel Bedoya-Perez joined me once again, this time to talk about the common but cute swamp wallaby. So I understand you work on swamp wallabies. Could you tell me a bit about swamp wallabies? Well, swamp wallabies are actually a, a very peculiar group within the macropods, within the kangaroos and betongs and wallaby group. First of all, because the only member of his genus, which is wallabia, so it's the only real wallaby, if you will, because he's the only member of that genus. Um, and it also is the only wallaby that is 100% a browser. And when I say a browser, means they don't eat grass that much. They eat a lot of shrubs. So if you think about kangaroos and wallabies and betongs and quokkas and all these all the macropods, they normally eat grass. There are certain uh, rock wallabies that are in between. They eat a little bit of grass and a little, little bit of shrubs and little seedlings of trees. But in this case, most of what this animal eat, the swamp wallaby, is actually shrubs and forbs and all these kind of things. So just to clarify, macropods being kangaroos and wallabies? Yes, macropods are basically everything that has big feet. That's what it means, big macro pod as, as, as a feet. I was interested that you said that swamp wallaby is the only true wallaby. What, what do other wallabies, are they falling in a different genus? The thing is that the, what, what people call wallabies are actually all members of different genus. There's a mm. whole different set of genus that are all called wallabies as a general statement, but they're all different. Even within certain lifestyles in, within the wallabies, they're different genuses as well. So within the rock wallabies, there's several genuses and within the, the rest of the wallabies there's several genuses. While swamp wallaby being the only member of one genus, it's interesting that the name of the genus basic is 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 wallabia it's actually a bad thing to say that is the real wallaby mm. but it is 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 the one that gave the name to the group so you say that the swamp wallaby is mainly a browser eating shrubbery i didn't know that actually and i remember learning learning one thing in my undergrad that wallabies defecate where they eat is that true i'm not sure about that it probably it is true although i, I wouldn't i wouldn't know why they do that it's interesting you say that because you would think there will be any. There won't be any reason why they will defecate where they eat. Although there's certain studies about distribution of wallabies, including a master's student in the same lab that I work, uh, they have tried to tease apart the distribution of swamp wallabies and how they use the environment by counting scats, um, because it seems to be a a, a good uh, proximate way of knowing where the wallaby, where the animal has been. The other thing that I'm thinking is that 
macropods in general, they're all um, full gut fermenters, just like cows and, and goats. So they ferment their food at the beginning of the digestive system. So that means that the food spends a quite a long time in their digestive system being fermented. So by the time it goes out of the system, first of all, you can argue that full gut fermenters are quite efficient by extracting all these uh, nutrients out of the plants because they ferment before they absorb. Uh, so because of all that amount of time, if you're eating, you're not going to defecate that food that you're eating until a couple of days later. So it would be probably if you defecate when you're eating, you're defecating something that you ate a couple of days before. Whereabouts would you find swamp wallabies in Australia? Well, basically everywhere. Not exactly everywhere, but they're all all along the eastern side of Australia, all the coast from the tip of Australia up north, all the way down to Victoria. And so they're everywhere, basically. And they're not an endangered species or anything. And it's funny because I know people that do wildlife monitoring and they put camera traps in. 90% of the time what they get in the cameras is actually swamp wallabies because they're everywhere. And they started calling them bush junk because they're so numerous. Aww. What times of day or night are swamp wallabies most active? Well, they're, they're pretty much active throughout the day and night. Like, they don't have really any kind of pattern of sleeping at night or being sleeping at day. Although they do, they are more scarce like more, more, more scared of people during the day and they keep hidden a lot more. And in my case, the kind of experiments and um, research that I've been doing with them when I put food outside and test how much food they eat, I do find that when I put cameras, most of the videos that are during the night, they go and forage during the night. While during the day, it's very rarely that you can get videos of them going into the feeding stations that I put out. That was Miguel Bedoya-Perez speaking about swamp wallabies. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Do you have a science question that's bugging you? Email your science questions and stories to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com and our scientists will do our best to find the answer and feature it on a future episode. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live elsewhere and have a story you would like to contribute, send us an email on diffusion at 2ser.com. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I've produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next time on Diffusion Science Radio.